Well, good morning, BCC. I'm Stephanie Redd. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, let me welcome you again this morning, especially if you're new to us today, perhaps visiting for the first time. We're so glad you're here. You found a wonderful family of, of loving people, and um, we, we love you too. And I hope you uh, get to experience that today. And uh, we love because we know that Christ first loved us. And it's a privilege to get to work together as a group of imperfect people to, to be his hands and feet to this community and beyond. Um, I have been, uh, Shane, my husband, and I have been at this church for about 18 years. Um, I do hold a local minister's license, but mostly I'm a layperson, just like you. So I'm glad to be with you today. And I, I do want to take a minute as we begin and acknowledge... Where we are as a congregation, we are in a season of change as our lead pastor moves on. And at the risk of making you feel like you're in a job interview this morning, I'd like to know if we have anybody in the crowd who thrives on change. If you're a person that's like, hey, I manage change pretty well. I actually kind of like it when things get mixed up. Are you brave enough to raise your hand today? I see a couple back here. Um, Mr. Steve will be holding a class. Uh, behind, in the, behind the sanctuary this morning for anybody who would like to learn from him. I know I would. <laughs> Maybe you are a little bit more like me, and you kind of like an environment that allows for some predictability. Anybody in that camp this morning? That's me. I'm not ashamed to say it. Well, one thing we all have in common in this room today is that we are dealing with some unexpected change. And even if you haven't experienced some change recently in your life, I'd venture to guess if you hold on, that too will change. <laughs> um, it's just the nature of the lives that we live, right? And it's, it's, it's interesting to consider as a culture how much we struggle with change. In my 7.30 to 5.30, we talk about this a lot. In the business world, we love to talk about change. Uh, this week, as I was preparing, I was like, well, let's just Google like, how to deal with change and see what comes up. There were 4 billion search returns, right? No shortage of things to, to talk about. Um, I could pick up a book called Who Moved My Cheese? I could read on Thinking for a Change, The Six Secrets of Change, The Big Little Book of Change, or Own Your Past, Change Your Future. <laughs> there are no shortage of thoughts and strategies and ways that, are, that, that we can educate ourselves on how to navigate a season of change. Uh, Shane and I have been walking through some change over the past 90 days or so. We've, I've changed a job. We've changed where we live. We've had some friends move away. I, I thought I was dealing with it all pretty well until about a week and a half ago when I was driving down the road and I took notice of a tree that had changed colors. It was beginning to change colors, which it's, you know, September, October, we come to expect these things. So I was surprised when my first emotion was anger at the tree for changing too. <laughs> um, and then I consider, maybe I'm not dealing with this as well as I think I am, even though the change we've encountered has been good change for the most part. What is exciting about this series that we've entrenched ourselves in over the past few weeks Studying the life of Moses is that what the people of God experienced throughout this period in Israel's history is highly applicable to the situation we find ourselves in today. In fact, uh, as I was preparing for today and I opened up one of my favorite commentaries and was digging into the author's thoughts on this portion of scripture, um, he opened up with, 
uh, well, in my church, we're dealing with a pastoral change. (laughs) And let me read you his words. He said, losing your pastor isn't like facing the Egyptian army or of an evil dictator like Pharaoh, but it raises some similar issues. Can you face the future? Whom do you trust? Change can be hard. We prefer the situation we know. So it is with the assured knowledge, friends, that Scripture is active and alive and that the Holy Spirit speaks to us even today that we turn to the end of Exodus 13 this morning if you've got your Bible with you today. So last week, we left the the Israelites and the Egyptians as they had just endured or suffered or come through, I struggled with the right verb there, (laughs) The, the plagues that culminated in the Passover event and ultimately Pharaoh's decision to let the Israelites leave Egypt. Now, it would have been easy and and still miraculous for this to be the end of the story of deliverance for the Israelites. God delivered them from the plagues, and he delivered them from Pharaoh, and they went to the promised land. Amen. We would probably still be telling this story even if it ended there, but curiously, it doesn't. God still has work to do. So we pick up with the Israelites in chapter 13, verse 17, and it says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went out of Egypt ready for battle. Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the people of God at this point. Maybe we feel like we know a little bit about plagues in this day and age, (laughs) but the scope of what they've just been through is astounding. Let's remember that they had been in Egypt for 430 years, enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. Now, God has given them a way out. That's the understatement of the year. He's given them a way out in fairly dramatic fashion, And the direct route from Egypt to the promised land would have led the Israelites down a road called the Via Maris, which literally means road of the sea. Now, if if you were one of these Hebrew people and you were escaping from Pharaoh, I'm, I'm guessing you would have said, let's take the most direct, efficient, and speedy route possible and get out of Egypt, right? In today's language, we would have programmed the address into Google Maps, we would have hit most direct route and been on our merry way. However, this isn't what God planned. In my translation, it's it's a little separate from the one we, we just read. It says, God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. God knew his people and he knew their hearts. Perhaps he knew the toll that recent history had taken on them. Perhaps he knew that they weren't yet fully surrendered to the plan that he had for them. He tells us he knew that they weren't ready to encounter additional resistance. And what we know about the Via Maris at the time is that it would have been filled with resistance, either from the Egyptians or from the Philistines. They would have had to battle their way across the most direct route from Egypt to the promised land. So God knew what was best for his people, so he changed the path he had them on, both for their protection and for his purposes. 
Now let's pause there for a second and ask ourselves if we've ever been in a similar situation. Have you ever been assured that God had you on a path and yet you encountered a detour on the way to get from point A to point B? And how did it make you feel? Can you imagine that maybe the Israelites would have been bewildered? I would have been. God, God it, it's right here. <laughs> the promised land is right here. Why are you leading us the roundabout way through the wilderness? But we read in the New Testament, it was, it was hard to ignore Romans 8.28 as we were reading this point, this, this section of Scripture. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see, God had a bigger purpose at stake for the Israelites. So he took them on the roundabout path. It wasn't the path they would have picked. It wasn't the path they would have prepared, but it was the one the Lord took them through. So let's pause there. Let's, let's pause again for a second. I'm going to take you on a little bit of a, a rabbit trail, a, a Bible geek rabbit trail, if you'll indulge me for a second. So the, um, the, the, those verses end with God leading the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Now that word in Hebrew... For Red Sea, the two words that represent Red Sea are Yom Sup. It's two three-letter words, Yom Sup. And um, that word we translate as Red Sup uh, is actually, in Hebrew, it's the word used for read. And there are uh, multiple theories. One thing that's not frustrating to us, but it can be frustrating to, biblical, frustrating to biblical scholars, is that we don't have a great deal of certainty about the exact geographic location at which this event, as we think toward the parting of the Red Sea, we don't have 100% confidence that we know exactly the place where it happened. Um, some scholars believe that it was indeed the Red Sea. Uh, some believe that it was someplace different. Really, the location's not important, right? We know that it happened, but here's what I think is really cool. So that word that we translate as Red Sea, which is actually the Hebrew word for read, if we back up into Moses' story, into chapter 2, and if you remember what happened to Moses as an infant, that his mother had to place him in a basket among the reeds, same Hebrew word, sup, placed him among the reeds to save his life. I think it's pretty cool that we get to read about Moses, who, who's, whose life God saved by placing him among the reeds, is then going to help deliver God's people through the sea of reeds. Sorry. There's no part of your story that God wastes, right? Every single detail of your life, God uses it for good, for his purposes, for his glory. And I think that's so beautifully illustrated here as we dig into the origin of those words. Praise God for that. There's no part of your story that it's wasted by God. So the story goes on to tell us that God guided them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So as Israelites have, have um, found themselves on this circuitous route, God appears to them, and Pastor Mark talked to you a little bit last week about theophany, which is God taking on physical form. So God cares so much for his people that he, he sent a physical reminder. He sent his presence to be with them. This particular theophany acts as a guide for the people of God, and it was also a demonstration of his power at work. If you can imagine, 
being the Israelites and being guided by the presence of God in the form of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. It's incredible. And it's interesting to consider that not only could the Israelites see this, but the Egyptians alike. So I wonder what wonder this physical representation of God's presence could have meant to the people who have no idea who he is. So as the Israelites are facing the unknown, they discover a couple of things about God. First of all, even though his plans sometimes don't make sense, they can know, we can know that his plans are for good. So as the Israelites encountered this unexpected route, this unexpected change, this unexpected thing, they came to realize that God was working for their protection and for his purposes, his good purposes, and that God's love for us is so great that he sends his presence even when and especially when the circumstances are difficult. As we turn to chapter 14, We get some additional instructions from the Lord to Moses that the Israelites' route should actually change again and order it for it to appear to the Egyptians that they have absolutely no idea where they're going. (laughs) Um, He he wanted the Egyptians to, to think that the Israelites were confused. And Pharaoh hears of this. And and decides that maybe his decision to let the Hebrews go was a little too hasty. So he then sends the entirety of the Egyptian army back after the Israelites. And for the first time in this section of scripture, we get a little bit of a glimpse into the why behind God's doing what he's doing. Why is he doing what he's doing? We we get to read the why here in, in chapter 14, verse 4, which says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So why would God take them by the roundabout way? Why would God flip Pharaoh's heart to go chase after them again after he had always let, already let them go? Because God knew that they needed to know who he is. See, God is concerned with the hearts of the people involved here. He's playing the long game. He sees a bigger picture than our limited vision cannot see, a bigger picture than what the limited vision of the Israelites who just wanted to get to the promised land could not see, a bigger vision than than what the Egyptians who were pursuing the people on behalf of Pharaoh, a bigger picture than what the vision of Pharaoh who was just concerned with enslaving people could see. And God understands that although Pharaoh and the Egyptians and perhaps even the Israelites at this point recognize his power, they don't yet recognize who he is. He sees that the people realize that they've been rescued, that they've been delivered, but in their heart, they're not ready to recognize that he is God, that he is in control, that only he is the one from which the miracles can come, and only he is the one that can be the true Lord of their lives. So a couple of contextual important things to know here. First of all, the Egyptian army was formidable, perhaps the most advanced in the world at this time. They were big, 
They were fast. They employed bows and spears and swords. And the word chariot is mentioned over and over and over again in these chapters to emphasize the incredible technology with which they were operating. Secondly, as God has led the Israelites among this roundabout route, they end up in a cul-de-sac of sorts. Um, they, they, they end up in a place to camp out next to the Red Sea where they find a great lake, sea. Let's, let's, for our own context, we'll say they, they're camped next to Beaver Lake on one side. And on the other side would have been a return to Egypt. They're essentially corralled into being sitting ducks. And they were trapped with the world's greatest army descending upon them, mostly unarmed, certainly without any of the resources that were available to the Egyptians. And the text actually tells us that the Egyptians overtook the Israelites as they camped. So, again, asking us to place ourselves in the mind of the Israelites at this point, who have been delivered but now taken along a very confusing route and consequently taken to a place that appears that they have no way out of. We catch up with them in verse 10 of chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. The Israelites were consumed with their deliverance. They wanted out. Even though God had just delivered them from the plagues, still they doubted. Still, they questioned God's plan. They preferred the slavery of Egypt to the risks of freedom in the wilderness. They were like me, mad at the tree. And if we can pause for a minute, I I, I do want to say this to you. Praise God that we have examples in Scripture of people crying out to him honestly. With their whole hearts. The, 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 the time we spend here thinking about this is not in critique of the Israelites coming to the Lord with an honest prayer. The question here is, are we aware of the things that are enslaving us? And, and sometimes I wonder, and as, as I fully admit to you this morning that I'm a person that can struggle with change, sometimes even the things that are really good in our lives can become the things that enslave us if we don't recognize who God is and we don't submit to his plan and his purpose amidst the change and the chaos. And what what I think, I'm going to ask you to put a pin in this for a minute, but I, I think what is happening here is that the Israelites were so consumed with their deliverance that they forgot who their deliverer was. So what is Moses' response to this outcry? 
Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Powerful words from the reluctant prophet who speaks this out to the Israelites. But man, be still. God, are you sure? How many times do we see this passage as we're facing challenging times in our life and we look at it with incredulous, what's that word? We look at, we look at and are incredulous. Like, God, really? Do you want me to be still? But here's what Moses knew and the Lord knew is that if, if the people of God hadn't been still, if they had formed um, 26 different little encampments and 26 different plans and they had all decided they were going to retaliate against the Egyptians and some were going to escape and there were all sorts of things going on and they acted in their own plan, in their own strength, in their own system of thought, they would have been easily overtaken by the Egyptians. Can you relate to that? How many times do we try to make our own plans? We try to counteract change that's coming and, and steal ourselves up with all sorts of plans that protect us from the unknown and the what if, and, and we only want the, the safest, most comfortable route. Moses reminds the Israelites here that they need to let God do what only God can do. Because he alone knows their situation and he's faithful. He will do what he says he will do. Now what's interesting is a follow-up to this section of scripture. In verse 15, we see the Lord speaking with Moses and God says, tell the Israelites to go forward. And the Egyptians shall know, continuing on, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his chariot drivers. <laughs> this is not profound. But friends, sometimes the only way through the hard thing is through the hard thing. Sometimes the only way to walk faithfully in a season of change and uncertainty, it's to get through it, to walk forward. God's just told the Israelites through Moses to stop your striving and to trust me. Now he pushes them forward in a state of surrender and reliance. And it's only in that step forward that they're going to realize who God is. It reminded me of Paul's exhortation in Philippians, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about how this whole narrative is not just about Moses and Pharaoh, but it's about God demonstrating his power and, and, and showing his deliverance from Pharaoh and this empire and these multiple deities that the Egyptian people worshipped. God is about to make his power known against the greatest military power of the day. 
in a, in a time in which people were very sure that Pharaoh was the one in charge, that Pharaoh's will was what was going to happen, that the great power of the world decides the direction of the world, God's about to remind people who is in charge. And what happens next is nothing short of incredible. The text tells us that all night long a strong east wind blew and it turned the sea into dry land. And so the Israelites begin to cross the sea, which pause there for a moment. God told them, praise God that he told them to go forward and they could walk in that, because can you imagine what it would look like to walk through Beaver Lake on dry land with walls of water on either side? That's not an easy feat. That is a step of obedience that they had to take to take that step, to know that it was God who was controlling the wind and the waves at that point. So the Israelites begin to cross the sea and they walk through, even as the Egyptians pursue them. And the Egyptians decide that they should flee, and this is important. Why does the text tell us that the Egyptians decided to flee? It's because the Egyptians recognized that the Lord was fighting for the Israelites. There's all of a sudden a moment of recognition from these people who had been standing against the Lord, who said, he's God. The Lord is fighting for the Israelites. So God effectively destroys their army while they walked on dry ground through the sea. The, the water's forming a wall for them on their right and their left. And then it says the, the Isra- that Israel saw the great work that the Lord did against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Finally, we see this recognition on the part of the Israelites and the Egyptians of who God is. He is the deliverer. He he is the mighty God, the one who saw them in their slavery, the one who sees them on the wilderness roundabout route. He's with them. He knows their hearts. He directs their path. He's the one who carried them safely away from a life of slavery to a life of liberation, a liberated life in which they would be free to have allegiance to him alone. And there's nothing they could have done to make it happen. It was only by his grace, his great rescue plan, his very character that they were saved. You know, for the Jewish people, this is an important story. It's one that in their daily prayer life gets repeated because it reminds them of what God has done to be faithful to them over the course of time. Adam Hamilton, who wrote the book that is the basis for this series, shared a story from a friend of his who is Jewish, and he said, this, this is our defining story. If you are a Jew, you've got to get this. It defines who we are as a people. We were slaves. God saw our suffering. God delivered us. And God made us his own. This is our story. And friends, this this is our story too. And it's our story because God saw fit to one day send Jesus to the world. Just as he acted to, to, I don't know, to save his people in this terrible situation, Jesus came and acted as a ransom 
for many. And what I want to challenge you this morning and ask you is, do you know the deliverer? The story of the Israelites here doesn't wrap up with a pretty bow. It continues ahead with a very difficult path. But what is the story that they repeat to themselves even today? That there is a deliverer. And clearly God has the power to deliver. He has the power to, we we serve a wonder-working God. One who works miraculously in incredible ways. But friends, in our lives, we are not always going to experience a resolution that makes us feel wrapped up with that bow that the Israelites perhaps most desperately wanted. Maybe you have a situation like that. Maybe you have a situation in your life that just feels like it's never going to change. I've got one in my life that for the better part of 20 years has been painful. It's hard. I don't know that this side of heaven I'm ever going to see a resolution to it. I'm not sure that I'll ever have the deliverance that I'm picturing from the situation, but I know the deliverer, and I know the one who's with me, and I know the one who's acting on my behalf, even when I think the route is roundabout, even when I'm not sure I have a peace of knowing that his presence is with me, that I can celebrate liberation and freedom because of the work of the cross. And when we know our deliverer, the circumstances in which we find ourselves become secondary because we know the deliverer who sees our heart. He sees the scariest, most awful, darkest situation you've ever been in. And he claims you as his beloved, even if you don't recognize it today. You are his beloved child, and he sent his son for you. So just as as our Jewish brothers and sisters tell this story as a reminder, I ask you, what's the story you'll tell? This is one you get to claim too. What's the thing that you need to use to remind yourself that you serve the deliverer, the one who is always faithful, the one who sent a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire and generations later sent the true Pharaoh into the world? He cares about you. He cares about the uncertainty you're facing in your life. And as you navigate the change, he's asking you, do you know me? Do you trust me? Do you believe that I'm the God of the unknown and that I'm working for your good and for my glory? In the same way that God brought the Israelites through that water into a new life, we're called to new life in Jesus. So for all of us in the coming days and weeks, when we face uncertainty, let's be reminded of the God who is faithful. 
Let's let him work. Let's obey his call to move forward and testify, especially for those of us who know Jesus. May we testify and we make our lives a living picture of the liberation and the freedom we have because we get to live in allegiance to him alone. And so when I ask you, what's your Red Sea story? What's the story you'll tell to testify to his faithfulness? Let me share with you one of mine. We have a daughter who struggles with anxiety. And, um, oh, it's hard. And it, it first really presented itself as she was beginning kindergarten. And every morning was a wrestling of emotion. And we threw up for 30 days straight of school. First four weeks of kindergarten, kindergarten every single day. And I remember getting to that place. We, we employed all the people. Praise God for counselors who come alongside us, for our medical teams who are gifted in these areas. And I, I remember sitting in our nurse practitioner's office and just broken and bawling because I didn't know how to help my kid. And yet day by day, we walked forward. We kept going because we know God held us. We didn't handle it perfectly. And I can't stand up to you today and, and give you this miraculous story of how she never struggles with anxiety. She still does. But what's gotten easier is the repeated faithfulness of God. And so when I need to be reminded that God is the, the deliverer, that when we seek him, we can always be assured of his presence. I remind myself of that Red Sea Road in my own life, and he wants to do it for you. So friends, as we close today, I, I wanted to bring us to the words of Moses. After the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, he and Miriam sing this beautiful first recorded song of praise in the word of God, and he says this, the Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. Who is like you, O God among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? In your steadfast love, you led the people whom you have redeemed. Would you pray with me today? Oh God, we thank you for being our deliverer. We thank you, God, that even though we are facing uncertainty personally, corporately, Lord, we know that you are in control. Lord, we, we praise you for your work in our lives, for your faithfulness, your repeated faithfulness, and God, for the person this morning who isn't sure of your love who isn't rooted in that assurance of your, your guidance, your sovereignty over their life. God, would you flood them with your presence today? Would you help them to know that they are loved and can be redeemed through the work of Jesus on the cross? God, we praise your name. We praise you that you are a faithful 
God who is going to guide us into something good for your glory. We love you, Jesus.